This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, this week we're in Birmingham for the Tory Party Conference and I'm joined by Matthew Paris, the Times columnist, Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times and Joe Tanner, former spin doctor for Boris Johnson who for 15 years worked with Katie Perrier who's now Director of Communications at Number 10. Welcome to you all. So let's start with you Matthew. How are you, how are you finding the Tory Conference? I'm looking for a replacement for the cliche about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic because that's such a dreadful cliche I can't use it but there's to me a, a strange feeling of everybody talking about all kinds of things but slowly we're slipping through the water and we don't know if there's an iceberg ahead waiting for us and to me it's given this whole conference a slightly surreal feeling. And the, the, the iceberg being Brexit? No one can talk about anything but Brexit and I've uh, been going through the pages of the Fringe Guide. There are 62 occurrences of the word Brexit in uh, events on, on, on the conference fringe. It's all about Brexit. Tim, the interesting thing is that it is everywhere, and yet we're learning nothing about what Brexit means. Well, we've learned a little bit. Um, most of it fairly obvious. Theresa May has wheeled out um, all sorts of uh, information. We know, for example, we know when Article 50 is to be declared by the end of March. We know that there's going to be a repeal of the 1972 European Communities Act. These are all pretty obvious things if you've been paying any attention, but they've been wheeled out like sort of the first two inscriptions uh, on the Ten Commandments. Um, but the, the general atmosphere is one of sort of almost rapture, I would say. I just ran into Bernard Jenkins earlier, the uh, hardcore Brexiteer, um, and he's saying this is the greatest Conservative Party conference he can remember since the fall of Margaret Thatcher when everyone turned up after she'd been decapitated and hailed her to the ra- rafters with gentlemen from Eastern Europe turning up and saying, you know, Margaret, we, you have given us our freedom. And, and the Brexiteers feel very like that. They think Theresa was a Remainer, but she's going to give them their freedom. One of the really striking things, actually, on that subject is the way that David Cameron has been almost completely airbrushed out of the conference. And the, the, the few mentions that he got during Theresa's speech on Sunday got very sort of polite applause. And George Os- mentions of George Osborne by Patrick McLaughlin were... were with total silence. There was a really weird video which preceded the speech by the party 
chairman, uh, Sir Patrick McLaughlin. The video looked as though it had been prepared for a party conference where David Cameron was still Prime Minister. There was no mention of Mrs. That may May, well be because it was, I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, you've been to a lot of these conferences before. How does this this compare to to previous ones? There are a few more smiles. More Um, smiles? More smiles. I actually think that the criticism that, you know, everything's being run from the centre and uh, everyone's being extremely controlled, I actually think there's a hell of a lot of politicians who look very relaxed wandering around that the big the big question was addressed to some extent on Sunday which kind of partly took the fun out of things I think for a lot of journalists attending but actually meant that there was a narrative that everyone could follow which is you know quite dull for anyone who wants to cover the conference but actually quite uh, helpful I should say for the uh, spin doctors and to for the rest of the politicians here. Tim you interviewed Theresa May for the Sunday Times at the weekend how did you find her how, how are we I wonder to what extent we're learning anything new about her during the conference. Well, a little bit. I mean, the one thing that's probably not a surprise is that she's been doing the job for 11 weeks and she already looks like she's been doing it for 11 years. Um, This is a woman who spent a lot of time preparing herself mentally for this job, I think. And now that she's got it, she, she seems to wear it fairly comfortably. The interview I did with her was sort of interesting. I've had quite a lot of feedback for it because it sort of showed a little bit more of the real Theresa May. She was prepared to talk about the death of her parents and her, you know, love of cooking and all this kind of thing. And it's not what you normally get from a Theresa May interview. And, you know, I've had interesting reaction from, you know, friends from universities whose mums read it and thought this is someone we can get behind. Yes, it certainly worked from her point of view and it was a brilliant profile, a brilliant interview, Tim. But it only confirms what actually we do already know about Theresa May, which is that she's lovely and warm and funny and chatty as long as you steer clear of politics. Get on to politics and the door just closes. Joe, to what extent do you think that we do need to get to know Theresa? Because some of the criticism of the David Cameron area is we had a bit too much of what he was watching in his box sets and his swimming trunks and all that sort of stuff. And actually do, you know, as part of this reset with the new government, should she be being advised not to go too far down that road and and opening up too much? And it's about, you know, she seems quite clear that uh, she is doing a job. The people in the cabinet are her colleagues. They're not her friends. Do you, th- do you think there's a risk of, of opening up too much? I, I think there was a there was a problem of oversharing um, with the last government. And I think that's actually part of the problem is that she's being judged. It was said of Blair, it went to Cameron and there was the same issue there. Um, Brown didn't really do so much of that, but with, with Cameron, it was more that he was in the Blair mould and wanted to share more. And I actually think Theresa kind of doesn't care about that stuff. She just thinks she's the right woman for the job and she doesn't need to be talking about what shoes she's wearing or what she had for breakfast. And quite frankly, I don't really care. Um, what she had for breakfast or what shoes she's wearing. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that she's got a bunch of people around her who are quite sensible, who are quite, quite frankly, normal. Um, they understand the, the value of the pounds. They have shopped in a variety of stores from, you know, Lidl's through to, uh, to the Waitroses. I think they understand a lot about the people that Theresa's talking about. It, it, it's interesting. I was just reflecting while you were saying that, that the, the Tory heavyweight whom the party loves most and feels in some sense closest to is Boris Johnson, who never talks about his his family or or anything that's going on in his life apart from politics. And yet everyone thinks they know Boris. Yes. yes. There's there's that element of the way he behaves that people think they know him. For someone that worked with him so closely on his first mayoral campaign, I can say you have to spend a fair amount of time with him to get to know him at all. But the persona he puts forward 
is very different from the man you, you get to know behind the scenes. And I think Teresa's attitude is, particularly in these times, we just need a grown-up doing the job, and that's exactly what, what we've got. So on, on the subject of Boris, how do we think he's adjusting to uh, life as Foreign Secretary? Uh, I think he's busy, <laughs> sometimes. I think he'll... He, he has he, he's been telling people when they ask how it's going, he says the world is a very big place. I think, I think uh, he spends a lot of time on aeroplanes. <laughs> I think, I think the, the biggest thing with Boris is it's a big job. He was extremely excited to get it. Um, I think the reality of it is probably setting in. And the biggest risk is that he gets bored. And that's always Boris's risk with anything, is that he gets bored. And I think that job has to continually challenge him in some way. And if he does get bored, this time we'll go to war instead of just <laughs> having an amusing story about something. I think it's very interesting that Boris has got already so uh, engaged with Russia. We've heard some pretty strong rhetoric about what they're doing in Syria. There's talk of him showing an interest in parts of Africa where we haven't been showing an interest for a while. I think Boris is uh, taking to it uh, like a duck to water. The, the view was that when he got this job, he was going to sort of go off and be a great cheerleader as he had been as London Mayor, cheerleading for Britain, drumming up business. Actually, Boris appears to be engaging in the weighty issues of the time. Yes, but, but in many ways, it's rather like being the Mayor of London, but elevated 30 or 40 pegs, in, in that it gives Boris the opportunity to do what he does best, which is kind of strut around and, um, and talk a good talk. And he doesn't actually have to do anything, because Britain doesn't really have any power in the world. We aren't making any decisions that matter. Well, that it's may be when he gets him. bored, if he realises that the power is actually somewhat limited. Um, you know, at the moment, he's engaging with all these different issues and finding it tremendously exciting. I, I was talking to one of his people last night. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is he and Theresa May did not know each other that well. Um, they appear to be discovering a mutual respect. Um, Boris, I think, realises that, you know, if he does harbour ambitions for the leadership, it will be very much after Theresa May has gone. There'll be no question of challenging this uh, formidable presence and you know she's given him a job she's taken a chance and so far she seems to be of the view that that's working out fine and so what about the other the other two brexiteers in the weird threesome that she created when she uh, what a hideous image formed, formed the cabinet says david davis and liam fox liam fox um now all stories about liam fox have to legally include the words in unguarded comments at a drinks reception because there's some uh, some more in the uh, so originally we had the fat business leaders are fat, too fat and lazy to uh, make a success of things. Um, uh, in a drinks reception at the Tory conference, he's talked about how the CVs they've been getting in for his Fisher to Workers Department aren't very good, basically. And well, the thing about Fox is that, you know, everyone thought Boris was going to be the one who was going to struggle to find a purpose. Actually, Liam Fox is the one where he doesn't even have a job unless we leave the customs union. So a lot of the things he's saying are you know, predicated on, you know, we've got to do a certain sort of Brexit, otherwise my my job isn't there. There's no purpose to having an international trade secretary if you can't go and sign trade agreements. And no one really wants to talk to us about uh, the, the sort of nitty-gritty of that yet. So Liam is trying to, you know, fill his time and not all of it productively, it would seem. D David Davis, the other in the trio of what one of our colleagues has called the three blind mice. Uh, David Davis had a, a difficult time in his speech on Sunday, it, w it was very hard for him because I think he had to come straight after Theresa May, so far as I remember. And he seemed to struggle with the auto cue. I, 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 th I think the message to David Davis, whom I, I rather, rather like and 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 rate, 
is that public oration is, is not what he's best at. What, what do, do you think? I think it also shows that, you know, these are people that haven't been at the forefront of things for some time. And, you know, it, particularly when you're the presentation stuff, you know, things move on. The technology that's used moves on over conferences to conferences. They use different screens, different systems. But I actually think the we've all joked about the three Brexiteers, but actually they have done some kind of, you know, they've got some Dogtanian type mantra with the sort of all for one and one for all, because I think they've realised that one goes, they all go, quite frankly. Um, and I think the kind of the three of them working together is what everyone expects wouldn't work. But I actually think, um, I think we're seeing it actually at the conference that they're being extremely well behaved, for now at least. On David Davis's speech, it's interesting, I bumped, I bumped into one of his team uh, the day after, and they said, oh, it was a bit of a shame that his, uh, the, uh, the, the PM stole a bit of his thunder. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a set, that is, I mean, that is the, that is the Prime Minister's prerogative. Really. Well, the other thing is, I mean, we're, we're astonished to discover that David Davis isn't much cop at making a speech. I mean, the reason he's not the, you know, the Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party is because he didn't make a very good speech in 2005. And, uh, you know, in the years that overlap, it turns out David, he's David been busy did. doing other things rather than getting speech training. It's interesting though, the, the, the death of the autocue, quite a lot of them aren't using autocues. Theresa May didn't use one on Sunday, David Davis did, quite a few of them. Um, a read, and the trouble with the, the hall in Birmingham, Symphony Hall, is lots of very high tiers of seats and you really do need to be looking up. And instead, I think David Davis suffered from this, sort of chin down, burbling away at a pile of papers doesn't make for a great speech. There, there is a reason why people are not using autocue, apart from not wanting to look as though they're sla the slaves of technology. I, I've done quite a lot of speaking on autocue and, and just using notes. You'll never make a bad speech if you rely on autocue, but you'll probably never make a great speech either because your eyes get horribly drawn, like almost magnetically, to these little words going across the screen. You can never see to the end of a paragraph what the paragraph's going to say, and it takes a certain amount of life out of your speech. And of course, last week we had the, at the Labour conference, we had the, the, the big auto-cue issue where uh, Seamus Milne, the, Lib De, uh, the Labour spin doctor, edited the speech on the auto-cue almost as Clive Lewis was reading it out and discovered that the policy on Trident was changed. So maybe that's why. If, you, if it's written down in front of you, then it can't be... It can't be edited. So um, in terms of the, the rest of the cabinet, who else is having a good conference or a bad conference? Or, is, or, or actually, is it all, as you were saying, Matthew, that, that it's, just it's just all about Brexit? Well, Rory Stewart had a, a very good fringe. It was absolutely packed. I had to queue to, to get in. He's becoming a bit of a sort of conference rock star in lots of ways. He's at the uh, at DFID now, um, Minister of State, and... and, and trotting around all over the world, but he's just such an elegant speaker. Everybody seems to love him. Tim, has anyone else has caught your eye or otherwise? Not especially, and I don't think that matters greatly. This, this conference is solely and entirely about Theresa May, and she needed to do th three things. She needed to make some progress on Brexit. She needed to tell the country a bit more about who she is. I'm sure we'll get more of that tomorrow. Uh, and she needs to spell out a little bit more of her domestic agenda. And, and you know, doubtless we'll get that too. Um, but everybody just needs to go away from here, you know, having a bit more of a handle on who she is and what she's what she's planning. And I don't, I don't think the rest of them matter one jot, to be perfectly frank. Taking that on board, let's talk about Ruth Davidson, because she's interested. She's, she's hugely popular. She, her, her profile definitely rose during the EU referendum campaign because she took part in that debate and, uh, and that raised her profile across the UK. She's interested because she seems to be positioning herself as the sort of voice of the soft Brexit. She's saying that actually she wants to be as close to Europe as possible, even if that means accepting some freedom of movement, which is absolutely not what uh, not what Theresa is saying. Joe, what do you make of Ruth? 
Um, I, I've had the pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with Ruth actually over the last couple of years and I do think she is, she's one to watch, we've all said it. Um, she has a very, very smart way, in, in a problem, probably in a way that Boris has. She connects with people on very many levels. It, over the summer actually I spent some time in Edinburgh and people came up to her a bit like a rock star. Uh, the kind of Boris effect when you walk through a town and people kind of gravitate towards you. And um, I, I actually think one of the, the biggest challenges is giving her a role in conference. Conference is quite hard because you have to cover various domestic agendas, um, but then you also have to find space for those people that actually you know are good on TV, good at reaching out, good at you know getting out beyond the party. And I think. You know, we've all talked about the movement with Labour and attracting kind of more people to the party, but Ruth's one of those people that is going to manage to do that for the Tories for years yeah, to come. She's becoming like the Claire Balding of the Conservative Party. She's on everywhere. Everybody loves her. No one has a word to say against her. Anyone who has had lunch with her feels that they already know her really well and that she's completely relaxed and natural with them, and, and she is. There's a little bit of a danger of burnout. I, I think she'll have to t take care. At the moment, she's riding so high that she can indicate that she doesn't like hard Brexit and wants soft Brexit, and somehow she's got the, the conference license to say things like that. Anyone else would, who did it would be described as causing a split in the Conservative ranks. And I think if you actually talk to, to Ruth, one of the things that's really interesting is that Theresa is an asset in Scotland for Ruth which is very different to the last administration. It was, it, was never, it was never really felt that George or David played well in Scotland at all, whereas Theresa actually is, is someone that I think Ruth can work with and feels that Theresa and her for. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You know, helping to keep the, the union together, as it were, actually, there'll be quite a formidable team. Am I allowed to put my cynical hat on here and say that it's hardly surprising that a, a Scottish politician in a country that voted overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union is making warm noises about... Uh, not uh, perhaps having a, a hard Brexit. I think it'll be really interesting going forward um, to see how Theresa May handles uh, Ruth Davidson. Ruth is obviously a little bit of a rock star. On one level, she's you know, it's easier for her to kind of have that effect on people than it is for the Prime Minister. There are some women who didn't get jobs in the reshuffle who think that Theresa May's not great with uh, people who. Uh, 
look like another strong woman who might potentially rival her. Now, if she's sensible, she'll realise Ruth's a huge asset and, you know, is in no position to challenge her in any way at this point. But uh, a lot of people have been criticising the past for not putting a sensible succession plan in place for when they go and a lot of people think you know Ruth might make a good leader one day. It'll be interesting to see whether Theresa May harnesses that or whether she at some point comes to regard it as something that undermines her and is a rival to her. But, but as someone that founded an organisation that has done nothing but help promote women, conservative women in politics, yeah, Theresa yeah. May set that, that set that organisation up, Women to Win, 10 years ago and it was extremely unfashionable. It was an organisation that I helped do the PR for. And Teresa kind of would, you know, tour the country going to little meetings where women who were interested in campaigns against phone masks or school crossings and things were told that actually if you care that much about your community, you're exactly the sort of person that could be a politician. And, you know, you could say perhaps she's suspicious or wary of other strong women, but actually she has helped she has helped nurture the careers of many women who've come through the Tory ranks and will actually be attracting a hell of a lot more. And, you know, it's been reported that um, when the team went to meet President Obama, the first thing he said was great gender balance because he was actually overwhelmed by the number of women that walked in. And I actually think Theresa does walk the walk on this as well as talking the talk. She has spent a long time trying to promote women and um, I think we're going to see more of that in years to come. So at the uh, Red Box Fringe this week, I interviewed Amber Rudd, and one of the things, who's now the Home Secretary, and she's in this impossible position where she's the only member of the Cabinet who can't trash the previous regime because her predecessor is now her boss. It's a bit like being David Moyes at Manchester United, isn't it, really? <laughs> and, uh, but she, she was in, and, and she uh, was interested because she said that uh, Theresa's been very supportive, has offered lots of advice. And I said to her, do you consider her a friend? And she's a, you know, she, no, she's a colleague. And that's, but even, even though she definitely feels that she was helped by Theresa as a, a female candidate and then as a, you know, when she arrives as an MP. But there is this sort of, it's all, it's all very much, this is work for Theresa. It's not, it's not the chumocracy. Isn't that better? Because you can fire them then if you need to. You know, you don't feel quite so guilty if someone has an issue. And I think that professionalism, it's that bit about we have a grown-up in number 10 and it's not about sofa, sofa government, it's not about it all being cosy. It's actually about there's a job to do, do it well or get out. I, d I do think that you've absolutely nailed it there, that that sense of professionalism, that sense of almost an old-fashioned sense of orderliness uh, about Theresa May really resonates well with this Conservative Party who knows about the country outside. I love the way after her speech on Sunday she kind of picked up her notes and not waiting to bow for the applause, just marched off as if to say, right, I've got better things to do now. I think people like that brisk dispatch of business about her. It's a sort of reversal of the, some of the Americanization yes. of uh, British politics. I mean, sitting obviously at the moment with the uh, US elections, we're seeing all the sort of ticker tape and point, endless pointing and smiling for uh, adoring crowds. And actually, you're, her, her sort of, right, that's it, I'm off, I've got something else yeah. to do. No, but the last administration used to put tweets out about, you know, the storyline on Coronation Street and stuff. Yeah. We do know that there's actually quite a lot for government to be doing. And I'm, to be honest, quite comforted by the fact that they're getting on with the job. I, you know, I'm not interested in what the Prime Minister thinks about the storyline on a soap opera. I'm more interested in whether they've actually been meeting with the right people doing the job that's in hand. In a way, though, that's, that, that's, the, that's the new spin. The new spin is that we don't spin. Meanwhile, are they still spinning in Downing Street? Are they still saying, what's the announcement for this week? I bet they are, 
but they're doing it in, a, in an unspinning kind of Not way. as much as they were, I think it's fair to say. And we've lot, She doesn't do pointing, Matthew. We know she doesn't do pointing. <laughs> we had no fish pointing over the summer. We had very serious shots of a, of a Prime Minister and her husband walking through the Swiss countryside. There was no pointing at fish like and David Cameron a, used to. This it, is a great it, disappointment to many of us. It came out since over the weekend that she... Um, she wanted, to, she wanted to fly BA to go on a Swiss walking holiday. And somebody suggested, well, you know, it probably looks better if you go with EasyJet. And no, she went with BA because that's what she does. And I think this sort of... David well, she's Cameron, probably got the points. David you know, Cameron constantly overcompensating for his poshness by pretending that he would fly BA. Now, now we discover well, it also, last week... It was false, wasn't it? Yeah. it, it you know, and it, you, uh, he's not getting on EasyJet now, presumably. You know, he'll be friends with private jets flying around the place. But, you know... I mean, people, some people thought that, that the English holidays were affectation. They weren't, of course, because the very poshest English people all head to Cornwall for a week during the summer. But, you know, jumping on EasyJet for a weekend in Ibiza is, you know, it's not, it's not what he'd be doing now. No, you're absolutely right, Tim. And, and the point is that the people to whom she's trying to appeal in Britain wouldn't dream of flying EasyJet if they could afford to buy... No, they'd be desperate to be on BA, and if they silly. could get a flatbed, they'd take it. Yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely nobody... Ops for Ryanair out of anything other than a desire to save money. Yes, it's not because it's some sort of great, great lifestyle choice. So what happens? What happens after after we leave Birmingham? Uh, what happens next? Do we do we feel like we all go to sleep? We all go to sleep for the rest of the week for a very long time. But it felt like over the summer, government was on ice. Nobody said or did anything of interest. Political journalists were pulling their hair out. Wondering what to do apart from writing about the Labour leadership contest. It feels like. Well, there'll be another one of those along soon. I'm one sure. of those and it'll be even less interesting. So, um, what, what do we need from the government from Theresa May in the, in the months between now and, say, Christmas? We need, to, we need what uh, we know she can't deliver, uh, which is um, a have our cake and eat it Brexit. And uh, in that sense, this conference takes us no further than we were before it started. Journalistically, I think a lot of people are waiting to see, you know, exactly how it will be. They've had a very quiet period over the summer. They've not said or done a great deal. Um, we've been told that this is partly a change of style and not wanting to do things like David Cameron. There's a basic level of professionalism and news management that's going to be required, and we're all waiting to see exactly how much they're prepared to engage with, with you know, the parliamentary press gallery and with the public at large. I think there were some things that were allowed to drift over the summer. I think if you wait three weeks from a story about grammar schools first coming out before telling people what happens during the frenzy of you know, a full-on parliamentary session, you're going to be in a, a lot more of a mess than you were when that's happening during the month of August. Um, so a lot of people said cut them some slack, give them to a conference, see how everything works out. That you know, They've hit the ground running, it's all been professionally done so far. Um, and then we see what happens, you know, in the months ahead. And the, and the kind of parliamentary ding-dongs will then start. I mean, the big, the big issue is that there's this movement towards the select committee to watch what's happening on Brexit. That you know, there will be questions to ministers. There will be answers required for several things. The actual joining up of the last dots and colouring in the picture has to start happening now. You can't just delay and delay and delay to have the conversations at conference to make the big speeches about what things are going to be happening. The, the general questions and machinery of government starts to move. And this is a Prime Minister that I think does at least respect the authority of Parliament and kind of feels, as you said, Matthew, there is actually a process that you have to follow. The orderliness is actually where we'll see what's going to be happening because Parliament will need to, to be scrutinising everything that's going on. And the issue of Brexit, then it gets... All, basically, anything they try to get through Parliament is going to be 
coloured by that. So, so the opponents of grammar schools, for example, actually line up quite nicely with the opponents of uh, of Brexit. You've got Nicky Morgan, hardline Remainer, very unhappy about Brexit, but also very unhappy about grammar schools and trying to whip that. I mean, the, her majority is still the same as the one that David Cameron had. Uh, but, and uh, it's just the, the people with the rebels and the loyalists have swapped over. Yeah, and, and, and behind the, the outspoken rebels like Nicky Morgan, there lies perhaps, I don't know, Tim, your estimate would be better than mine, but between a quarter and a third of the parliamentary party that are really quite worried about the whole Brexit thing. And we're going to see, you, you say that she has great respect for, for Parliament, we're, we're, we're going to see Parliament try to exert some kind of bite, some kind of control over what sort of Brexit we get and whether they'll attach conditions or try to in the Commons or the Lords to this great repeal act or how they'll do it we don't know but one way or another that they will do it. I think the interesting place is actually the House of Lords actually mm -hmm. more than the Commons. I mean uh, talking to ministers this week the, the situation in the Commons is perhaps not as bad as we're painting it because Labour is in chaos and the Labour rebels quite often can't be bothered to turn up. Um, there are probably 15 to 20 Labour people don't turn up for most votes. Um, the DUP can probably be relied upon to vote with the government most of the time. Once you chuck all that in, the working majority is not 17, it's probably nearer to 50. But in the House of Lords, you've got a situation where the, the Labour peers have effectively declared UDI from the rest of the Labour Party and will do their own thing. And, and there's a real opportunity for the Liberal Democrats who are going round apparently on the surface slightly ridiculously claiming to be the real opposition when they've only got eight MPs, but they do have a lot of peers. Um, and Dick Newby, uh, the Lib Dem leader in the Lords, working with Tim Farron, can cause quite a lot of trouble there, it seems to me, in order to establish themselves as a sort of credible alternative force. And that can, you know, that can get in the way of quite a lot of things. Well, we've got a piece from uh, Labour peers on Red Box today uh, saying exactly that, that Labour peers will exert pressure to Parliament to have a greater say over Brexit. I mean, you can then get to a big argument about whether or not unelected uh, peers in the House of Lords should be trying to uh, frustrate the outcome of a... Of a but we've also got a lot of distracted MPs about the Boundary Commission and the review. I mean, there's a, there's a, a number of MPs that are very concerned about the future for them, and that, they become quite difficult to whip when you don't know what they're going to be doing next. When they're very concerned about whether they're still going to be an MP in just a few years' time, they become harder to control, as it were, when you need to push them in the right direction. I think the way that the unelected Lords could frustrate, as it were, the result of a referendum without sounding undemocratic would not be to try to block the Great Repeal Act, which arguably is a manifesto commitment in that it flows from a manifesto commitment, but to attach to it the condition that the thing can't actually be triggered, can't go ahead without a vote in the House of Commons uh, in its, in its favour. The Lords could do that and it wouldn't sound anti-democratic. But Theresa fired a very clear warning shot about those that were willing to try and dis disrupt or derail the process, yes. which I think included both houses in her speech Indeed, on Indeed, uh, she on said Sunday. that uh, people who think as they do and as indeed as I do, were trying to subvert democracy and uh, Matt Chorley's interview yesterday with Amber Rudd, I asked her whether she thought such people were trying to subvert democracy and she replied, I wouldn't put it like that. So before we, uh, before we wind up, what, uh, this is the last, unless we, unless we count the S&P, but that's not for a couple of weeks, this is the last of the sort of party conference season. What is the point of party conferences and do we get anything out of them apart from sort of hangovers and uh, chronic tiredness? 
Well, for the last few years, I've t been tending to write the, part, the party conference is dying as an institution. I, I think maybe I was being a bit hasty there. The Labour conference was quite important. It was, it was kind of dead and flat, but it, it did show you that there is really no resistance left to Jeremy Corbyn, and I hadn't understood that before going to Liverpool. And I think this, this Conservative conference too tells you, A, how strong the Conservative Party is feeling, how excited they're feeling, but also something about the underlying anxieties beneath that. So yes, I, I think they're still useful. It's a bit like Prime Minister's questions. It's mm. a sort of way of taking the temperature and, you know, you get a bunch of people like us who go to all these things, you can compare and contrast. And I think a lot of what's impressive about what's happening this week is in direct contrast to what was happening last week. You've got a, a grassroots membership um, that's sort of uh, pretty upbeat here at, at the Labour Party. The sort of the regular membership of the party was pretty depressed. That the new sort of arrivals who were all uh, getting together down the road at the momentum event were, uh, you know, more upbeat. Um, but you know, taken together, what have we learned? That Theresa May is in an extraordinarily strong position. Um, as Matthew says, the you know the the people in the Labour Party who regard themselves as moderates, you know, sessions with ministers this week are full of you know looking forward and the excitement of what they're going to do last week sessions with the sort of you know the senior people were, were therapy sessions where <laughs> uh, you spent most of your time listening to people agonizing about not whether they could get rid of their leader or whether they could institute a policy and write a manifesto that might win an election but whether they're about to be ousted from their own seats by their own activists um, and it, it, you know we're in a pretty strange world now I, I would totally agree I, I, I run a space at conference where we have meetings going on and, and last the week London was where we are now. the London Lounge and it's it last week was just about sad faces coming in looking for a corner to sit in <laughs> and to hide away from everyone else at conference um, I'm not quite sure why some of them were there uh, and many did leave early uh, deliberately but actually uh, the Conservative conference is full of people actually sitting having conversations about issues a, a lot of these people in you know new jobs meeting the people they need to know in their new industry new new roles etc um, and I still you know I still think it's quite expensive to, to attend. I still think it's too expensive for some to attend. Um, but I, I actually do think there's a hell of a lot of business done while you're here. And that's all we've got time for from Birmingham this week and the last of our party conference podcasts. We've gone from the Lib Dems who were relentlessly optimistic even though nobody was really listening. Last week at the Labour Party conference uh, it was all doom and gloom unless you're a hardcore Corbynista and it's been striking at the Tory conference this week that we've had some people that you mostly have heard of announcing mostly interesting policies which are actually going to happen. All of that will uh, come together when we get back to Westminster next week and see how Brexit it means Brexit finally pans out. Uh, as ever, you can follow us on Twitter at Times Red Box or find us on Facebook. Sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box email and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device so it gets sent to you automatically every week. But for now, for Matthew, Tim, Joe and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.